let us trust him. Let us find his grace and know that we stand in him complete and that he is our hope. We can have joy and confidence in him. This morning as we turn to the word of God, I ask that you take your copy of God's word and turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 42. Jeremiah 42. We have been studying the book of Jeremiah in Bible Hour, and this morning we looked at some of the last events recorded of Jeremiah's life. And a lot of it flows together. Jeremiah chapter 40 all the way through to 44 all go together. And instead of separating out over a few weeks, I thought it would be wise for us to just continue where we left off earlier this morning and continue on. I don't know how much review to do. Some of you weren't here this morning. Um, so if you did miss this morning, I encourage you to check the podcast and re-watch re it or re-watch it. Uh, it's a part of Scripture. Here in the book of Jeremiah, we find a lot of prophecies, a lot of sermons, a lot of details given specifically to the nation of Israel. And sometimes in the midst of all of that, it's tucked in here, this history is often overlooked, and it's not commonly known by many people. But it's an intriguing time in the nation of Israel's history, and it's a time in which we could learn a lot. Jeremiah, for decades, has been preaching in Jerusalem. Turn to God. Trust God. Trust God. Kings have come and gone. Jeremiah began his ministry in the days of King Josiah. King Josiah, that one who became a king as a boy, that one who prepared his heart to seek God. But he was very much alone because we find out in the book of Jeremiah chapter 12, in the days of Josiah, even in the midst of all of the great reform that was taking place in the nation, that though God said their lips spoke as if they knew God, God says their hearts were far from me. And that was true back in the days of Josiah. Josiah lived, he died, his son became king. And do you know the, the saga of all of the different kings and of Josiah's sons of coming and being removed by foreign kings, beginning with Pharaoh, and then another becoming king. And all of this time, the nation is in turmoil, and Jeremiah continues to preach against the sin, against the evil that is in the nation. But he's not listened to. He's not hearkened to. <clears throat> and the events of Jeremiah chapter 40 through 44 record the history after Jeremiah had, or after Jerusalem has finally fallen. And all of the prophecies and all of the warnings that Jeremiah has given for decades have now fully come to pass, and the people have actually seen it. Many of the people have been carried away captive to Babylon. Jerusalem has been sacked. Jerusalem has been spoiled. It is nothing but smothering ruins. Nebuchadnezzar appoints his general to appoint a governor in Judea. Gedaliah is set up as governor. But we learn that Ishmael, a guerrilla warrior, a patriot who had been in hiding in Ammon, comes to Judea and assassinates Gedaliah. 
and then proceeds to carry the people away captive to Ammon, which another guerrilla warrior who, uh, who is a contemporary with Ishmael and one who is kind of an opposition to Ishmael, he comes and he rescues all of those people and he brings them back, not to Jerusalem because it is in ruins, but to a town south of Jerusalem near Bethlehem. And the plan is to go to Egypt. And as we learned this morning, they come to Jeremiah and they ask Jeremiah to ask the Lord on behalf of them whether or not they should go to Egypt. And Jeremiah preached a sermon to them 10 days later, revealing to them what God had said. And it was basically this, stay in the land. If you stay in the land, God said, I will plant you, I will build you. And Nebuchadnezzar, whom you fear, you need not fear, for I will deliver you from him. I will cause you to prosper. Stay in the land. That's option one. Option two is, as your heart's desire, go to Egypt where you will die, either by sword, famine, pestilence, disease. As we learned this morning, the people came to Jeremiah not really with a heart and a desire to know what God had to say, but they wanted Jeremiah to affirm what they wanted, which was to go to Egypt. And so when they've been given this clear instruction, go not to Egypt, they just basically tell Jeremiah that you speak falsely. We will go to Egypt. And so they take hostage, captive, Jeremiah the prophet and his scribe Barak and all of the people from the least to the greatest, all the ones that were left that Nebuchadnezzar hadn't carried away. Now this patriot carries these people, including Jeremiah, down to Egypt. And this morning, we're going to come to the last historical events recorded in the book of Jeremiah and about Jeremiah the prophet. Again, as I mentioned this morning, you might think, oh, well, we're only here in the 40s, and why, this book doesn't end until, whoa, what is it, 50-some chapters, right? 52 chapters. Well, all of that history narrative is out of order. In fact, the last verse of the whole book is the only thing that comes after Jeremiah chapter 44. So as we look this morning at Jeremiah 33 and 34, we're looking at the very end of the record of Jeremiah. We're going to look at his last sermon. These are the last words of Jeremiah. In fact, these are the last words of the Lord preached to the remnant that is now captive in Egypt. Do you think that these people who for decades, some for their entire lives, have heard Jeremiah preaching against idolatry, against injustice, against all of the evils that they have committed, do you think now that God will get their attention? It doesn't appear, as we learned in Bible hours, when <laughs> after all of this happens, Gedaliah gets assassinated, and then the people want to go to Egypt. God says, don't, and they say yes, and so they go to Egypt. So it's not looking very promising for these people as being a people who have changed. Will they change now? Will the message coming from Jeremiah make a difference in their lives now? We're going to look here at Jeremiah chapter 42, 43, 44. 
But before we do, I'd like for you to turn back to chapter 17 and look at a piece of one of Jeremiah's sermons. In Jeremiah 17, verse 9, perhaps you recognize that reference. Perhaps, and in fact, I know many of you have memorized this verse. This verse describes really many of the messages of Jeremiah from the beginning to the end. And here we're going to see it graphically illustrated at the end. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The declaration, the heart is deceitful above all things. This is one reason why the phrase, follow your heart, is not a good phrase. Because your heart is easily deceived. Your heart can be easily deceived. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You know, the problem is, is that oftentimes we think we know it. And you know the conclusion we often come to? Oh, I'm not so bad. I got this. I'm okay. Oftentimes we have desires, we have passions, and we let those guide us and direct us. And we think we know that our hearts are right where they should be. But the question is asked, rightly so, and I think Jeremiah is asking it even of himself, who can know it? You see, as we learned earlier this morning, those people, they didn't think their heart were desperately wicked. In fact, they were the ones who said, Jeremiah, you speak falsely. They were accusing Jeremiah as the one who was the liar, the deceiver, the one who was desperately wicked and deceived. When in the truth, they had in their own hearts, as we learned, dissimulated, and we're going to look some more at that word this afternoon, but they had dissimulated in their heart. They had gone astray in their own hearts. Who can know it? I'm glad that Jeremiah 17, 9 doesn't end with the question mark. Look with me at verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. God says, I search the heart. This is why it's so important for us to be humble. That's why we sing the song of search me, O God, which is really a prayer that's scriptural, that God would search us, that God would try us, test us, that God would reveal to us who we really are and our need for him. That's what's so important. He searches the heart. He knows exactly what our motives are. He knows exactly what our desires are. And he knows whether they are good or whether they are wrong. He knows whether they are right and godly or wrong and evil. He knows it and he can reveal it. I love where it says he tries the reins. Well, what are the reins? Well, that are, those are our kidneys. If you actually study that, uh, the medical term for our kidneys, it's tied right in there to the reins. And it says that he tries our reins. 
I find this description very fascinating. Some people have tried to look at this and say, oh, it doesn't make sense. It must be some idiom that made sense to Hebrews and doesn't make sense to us, um, us people in this era. I think it actually is deeper than that. What do your reins do? What do your kidneys do in your body? They filter your blood. They keep you clean. They take out the toxins. They take out the impurities. If your kidneys aren't working, you will die of poison. So I wonder how God tries the reins. The description of that which filters our blood and filters out the poisons. Well, when we have poisons of evil desires and lusts and passions, how are those evil desires, lusts, and passions, how are they filtered? Right here. The Lord is the one who filters them just as the kidney filters your blood. You see, the people in Israel at this time needed the searching of their hearts by the Lord, needed their <laughs> reins tried. They needed the toxins and the impurities removed from their hearts and from their passions. But you know that only comes when we are humble. We didn't spend a lot of time on it this morning, but when the command was given to them to stay in the land, the people responded and said, Thou speakest falsely. Well, did you notice the description of the people who said, Thou speakest falsely? Well, it tells us that all the proud men said this. Our hearts often are lifted up in pride, and the reason why we are then able to be so easily deceived is because we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And ultimately, in order for us to have our hearts searched and our reins dried, our motives and our passions and our desires, our ways, is to be humble. But really, we're like a stubborn sheep, and all we like sheep have gone astray and we've turned everyone to his own way. It's a description of each of us. And so we see these people here, and we see the leaders of these people, excluding Jeremiah and Barak, who are leading the people astray, who are causing all kinds of trouble for them. <sighs> Will they hear as time continues on? They've come to Egypt because they're afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. They've come to Egypt because they hope in Egypt they will find deliverance from the great might of Babylon. Here's my Babylonian crown. Here's Nebuchadnezzar's crown. And they hope that they will be delivered by going to the second greatest world power in Egypt and hope to find deliverance there, find peace there. Well, <laughs> Jeremiah has... A message for them. Look with me here in Jeremiah chapter 43. It tells us that the people have come now to Egypt and they're settling in. And it tells us in Jeremiah chapter 43 and verse 8 that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in that particular town where they had begun to settle in Egypt. And the Lord tells Jeremiah to take great stones in his hand and hide them in the clay in the brick kiln, which is at the entry of Pharaoh's house, and Tophanes, in the sight of the men of Judah. 
Now, what's going on here? As you know, Jeremiah loves object lessons, and they're originating with the Lord. God gives Jeremiah some object lessons. And so, he is going to give an object lesson to all of these people in Egypt. Now, what's a brick kiln? A a kiln is a furnace. You know, uh, have you heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace? Well, the fiery furnace is a kiln. And a fiery furnace was used to heat bricks. See, we have bricks here in this building, and they're made of concrete. But in Egypt, they would have bricks that typically were made of mud, and they would be dried in the sun, and sometimes they would be baked, cooked in a kiln, in a furnace, to where these bricks would become very, very hard. Well, it says here that there is a furnace at the palace of Pharaoh. Now, this isn't the capital city. This isn't the royal city of Egypt. This is one of, you might say, his, his northern um, palaces, one of his norm, northern retreats. And here at the entrance into this palace is one of these kilns where they make bricks. And they would make them in all different sizes. And what it's doing there, I don't know. Maybe they're doing an addition on Pharaoh's um, palace. Maybe they're um, redoing the pavement's bricks. Maybe they are um, um, just fixing something there. But anyway, they're needing to make bricks, and they're using them. And God says to, to uh, Jeremiah, go and take with you great stones and put it in the clay in the brick kiln. Well, what was he doing? Well, imagine with me here that I was going to make a mud brick, all right? If I were going to make a mud brick, and this is a pretty small one, right? You know, it's a loaf pan, it's all I got. I'd fill this with mud, and I'd pack it down. And then I'd take it, and I'd set it out in the sun. I'd let it start to dry in the sun. And depending on what kind of bricks I'm making, I may even put them in the furnace. Apparently here in this case, they're making bricks in the furnace, in the brick kiln. Well, God tells Jeremiah to go in front of all of the people. And as we continue reading here, it's implied that something's going on big. There's a festival. All the people are out. All the people are together. All the people are there. And God tells him to take a great stone and to put it in the clay. Now, if you know anything about brick making, that's not a good idea. But follow along. Put it in the clay, then fire it. I'm kind of surprised that the bricks even survived the kiln, the firing. But here he is. He takes it, and they're going to make the mud, bricks from the mud, but he's supposed to put these and hide these great stones in, in the clay. Why? Well, they're using these bricks to make a building or to make a pavement. Let's imagine that it's to make a building. So one of these bricks is going to go, just like we have concrete bricks here, to make this wall, right? So imagine with me that some of these bricks here on this wall are to the palace there of the Pharaoh. And in some of these bricks now have been hidden these great stones. That's what's going to happen with these bricks. So what's the point? That's luck here. So the Lord tells him, take great stones in thine hand and hide them in the clay in the brickland, brick kiln, which is at the entry of Pharaoh's house. And do this in the sight of all the men of Judah. And say unto them, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will set his throne upon these stones that I have hid. And he shall spread his royal pavilion 
over them. And when he cometh, he shall smite the land of Egypt and deliver such as us for death to death, and such as are for captivity to captivity, and such as are for the sword to the sword. And I will kindle a fire in the houses of the gods of Egypt, and he shall burn them and carry them away captive, and he shall array himself with the land of Egypt as a shepherd putteth on his garment. And he shall go forth from thence in peace. He shall break also the images of Beth Shemesh that is in the land of Egypt, and the houses of the gods of the Egyptians shall he burn with fire. Ooh, imagine with me for a moment, you're those Jews there, remnant of Judah, who have been carried away captive, kind of by your own family, to Egypt, away so that you could be spared from Nebuchadnezzar and his great army. Remember his general, Nebuzaradan? Yes, you've come to Egypt so you can get away from Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuzaradan. And here now, Jeremiah is taking bricks, and he's hiding rocks in the clay of the bricks, and he's telling all of you that the day is coming when Nebuchadnezzar is going to come to this very place where you all have found retreat from him in disobedience to God, and he will spread his royal pavilion right over these hidden rocks. Now imagine with me, if indeed this rock was used to make a wall, How's Nebuchadnezzar going to spread his pavilion if this stone right, this brick right here has the rock hidden in it? How? This wall's coming down. That wall's coming down, and on the ruins of that wall, Nebuchadnezzar will build his pavilion. These rocks are hidden in the clay bricks as a sign to Judah that Nebuchadnezzar is coming to Egypt, and he's going to win. Those who will die by the sword will be delivered to the sword. Those who will be carried into captivity will be carried into captivity. You have come to Egypt to flee what you fear, and what you fear will chase and track you down here to this place of your pseudo-refugee your false security, it will be knocked down. Nebuchadnezzar will come. Notice how Nebuchadnezzar is described by the Lord. Do you see that in verse 10? Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. God uses even pagan kings now, actually, if you look at how this falls into the chronology of Nebuchadnezzar's life, it's really fascinating and interesting because Nebuchadnezzar actually, there's a time in which whether or not he tr became a true, sincere believer in Jehovah is a little bit up in the air, but he sure does make declarations of God as the one true God of heaven and earth. Nebuchadnezzar is going to be God's servant to bring about this judgment in Egypt. The hidden stones in the wall or in the stone paving stones, bricks, he will spread his pavilion over them. Do you see there? He's going to destroy the houses of the gods of Egypt. He's going to burn them down. He's going to carry them away captive. And, he, and it says that he shall array himself with the land of Egypt as a shepherd putteth on his garment. What's that mean? 
Well, let's just imagine that there's a shepherd and he's going to put on his garment or put on a cloak. And so here, I, I'll take a cloak. And I'm going to array myself with this cloak. There. How hard was that? Was it very hard to put on my cloak? No, it was really easy. God is basically telling the people there in Egypt that as a shepherd puts on his garment, on his cloak, as easy as that is, that's how easy it's going to be for Nebuchadnezzar to conquer the entire land of Egypt. The land of Egypt you've come to for safety. It's of no avail. There's no hope here. There's no hope. Nebuchadnezzar's going to conquer. As prophesied here. Did the people repent? Seek to return to the land to actually obey what God has already commanded and revealed and said? No. Which brings us to chapter 44. The last sermon of Jeremiah. The last words of Jeremiah spoken as a captive in a faraway land of Egypt. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah concerning all the Jews which dwell in the land of Egypt, which dwell in Migdol and in Tophanes and in Off and the country of Pathoros, these regions. I've set out a Bible atlas at the Welcome Center where you can see where these places are. They actually go way far south where Jews have immigrated to regions all throughout Egypt in direct defiance and disobedience to God. And here now, this last message, this last sermon is going out to all of these Jews throughout the land of Egypt. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, ye have seen all the evil that I have brought upon Jerusalem and upon all the cities of Judah. And behold, this day they are a desolation, and no man dwelleth therein. Judgment did come to Jerusalem. Perhaps you're asking the question that maybe some of them asked. Why? Verse 3. Because of your wickedness, which they have committed to provoke me to anger, in that they went to burn incense and to serve other gods whom they knew not, neither they, ye, nor your fathers, Howbeit I sent unto you all my servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, saying, Oh, do not this abominable thing that I hate. Sometimes we read of this idolatry, and we just think of, oh, well, they were just worshiping idols. No, the worship of these idols is indescribable, grotesque, perverted, evil. It's just horrific. It's, it's, I don't even study it anymore. I got just enough to know I don't want to study anymore. It's horrific and grotesque. It's weird and sad to see how some of the same perversions and evil done in the idolatrous worship is actually done all the time in American homes on the television. Horrific. Horrific to think of how what we often think of as pagan is brought right into homes in modern times and even practiced. The idolatry continues even still to this day, some of these practices. 
abominable, God says they are. They're things that I hate. And it didn't just result in this evil. It was an entire horrific sex trade was all engaged with it. It was all filled with all kinds of things, even that we talk about even still to this day. It resulted in the exploitation of innocent people. It resulted in people then being consumed with power and exploiting the poor. Jeremiah is filled with judgments upon them for not taking care of the people. God hates it. And he sent prophets to warn them of it. But look at verse 5. But they hearkened not. They would not listen and do anything about what they had heard, nor inclined their ear to turn from their wickedness, to burn no incense unto other gods. Wherefore, my fury and my anger was poured forth and was kindled in the cities of Judah, in the streets of Jerusalem, and they are wasted and desolate at this day. Therefore now, thus saith the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, wherefore commit ye this great evil against your souls to cut off from you man and woman, child and suckling out of Judah to leave you none to remain. In that ye provoke me unto wrath with your works of your hands, burning incense unto other gods in the land of Egypt, whither ye have gone to dwell, that ye may cut yourselves off and that ye might be a curse and a reproach among all the nations of the earth. Here we now find that not only have these people fled to Egypt in direct defiance of what God had told them to do, they've now come to Egypt, and they have started up in earnest their idolatry and abominable wickedness. And Jeremiah says to them, verse 9, have ye forgotten the wickedness of your fathers and the wickedness of the kings of Judah and the wickedness of their wives and your own wickedness and the wickedness of your wives which they have committed in the land of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? They are not humbled even unto this day Neither have they feared, nor walked in my law, nor in my statutes that I set before you and before your fathers. They are continuing in the wicked, idolatrous practices at this time. And Jeremiah says, have you forgotten? Did you forget? That's what your fathers did in the land? That's what you did in the land? That's what brought about this calamity? You've still not humbled. Pride, you see, again, here is a problem. You've still not humbled unto this day. You've seen how judgment has come. You've endured it. You've been in the midst of it. And you still won't humble yourselves. Verse 11. Therefore, because you won't humble yourselves, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will set my face against you for evil. Evil here can, is, is not referring to moral evil, but that of calamity. And to cut off all Judah 
And I will take the remnant of Judah that I have set their faces to go into the land of Egypt to sojourn there, and they shall all be consumed and fall in the land of Egypt. They shall even be consumed by the sword and by the famine. They shall die. From the least even to the greatest, by the sword and by the famine, they shall be an excretion and an astonishment and a curse and a reproach. For I will punish them that dwell in the land of Egypt as I have punished Jerusalem by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. So that none of the remnant of Judah which are gone into the land of Egypt to sojourn there shall escape or remain that they should return into the land of Judah to the which they have desired to return to dwell there. For none shall return, but such as shall escape. They have come to Egypt in disobedience. And in Egypt now, they have continued to practice their idolatry, and they have continued in their wicked ways. And God says, I'm going to judge you, just as I judged Jerusalem. You've come to Egypt thinking that you'll find abundance of bread, thinking that you will find all of this wonder, which is really intriguing because way back, you know, the children of Israel actually used to be in Egypt, and it's kind of interesting. They used to um, make bricks, and they were slaves in Egypt, and there's always been this tendency to go back to Egypt. And now they've actually gone back to Egypt, and they've continued in their horrific idolatry. wickedness. And God says, judgment's coming, judgment's coming. He warned them before they went to Egypt, as we learned earlier this morning. And now they're in Egypt, and how long has passed? I don't know. It's long enough for them to immigrate all the way through, all the way down to the southern cities of Egypt, way down the Nile. And this message is coming again. Judgment's going to come, and there's only going to be a few who escape. You know why there's going to be a few that escape? Because um, God's made some promises to some very specific people, Jeremiah being one of them. They'll war against you, they'll fight against you, but I'll be with you and I will deliver you. Barak, though your life will be a prey, you'll be spared. These are people who have promises in this. And Jeremiah and Barak particularly are two who aren't in Egypt of their own free will. They were carried away there by their own kindred. Judgment's coming. So what do you think was the response of the people? Do you think that the people hearing this message and hearing of warning, remember, these were some of the very people who had just endured the siege of Jerusalem. These were people who had seen famine. These were people who had seen pestilence. These were people who had seen the sword. These were people who barely survived are being said, what you barely survived will overcome you now because you continue in your wickedness you think now that these people in hearing the words of the Lord, they will humble themselves? Well, I'll give you a little hint. In verse 10, it says, they are not humbled even unto this day. And so here when Jeremiah comes to this point in his sermon, there's a bunch of people all around, men and women. And, and some of these men have some things to say. For it says, then all the men which knew that their wives had burned incense unto other gods. And all the women that stood by, a great multitude, even all the people that dwelt in the land of Egypt and Pathros, 
This is a huge crowd. Many believe that they're all gathered together, and possibly the reason why they've all gathered together is for a celebration of worshiping the queen of heaven, an immoral debauchery of great wicked evil. And this has been proclaimed to them. Some of these men, they, they look and they respond. Listen, listen to what they say. As for the word that thou hast spoken unto us in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken unto thee. We will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth, to burn incense unto the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto her, as we have done. We and our fathers, our kings, and our princes in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of victuals, and were well, and saw no evil. But since we left off to burn incense to the queen of heaven, and to pour out drink offerings unto her, we have wanted all things, and have been consumed by the sword and by the famine. And when we burned incense to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings unto her, did we make her haste to worship her and pour out drink offerings unto her without our men? No. They won't humble themselves. Both the men and the women defy Jeremiah. Defy him. They actually claim that the calamity has come. They imply that it's because Josiah, that godly king, brought about reforms and caused us to stop worshiping the queen of heaven. And all of our troubles actually started because we weren't serving the queen of heaven. Totally flipping it. Notice what that man said in verse 16. We will not hearken unto thee, but we will certainly do whatsoever thing goeth forth out of our own mouth. You know what that is in modern colloquialism? We're calling the shots here. We're the ones who are going to do what we want to do the way we want to do it, and it's what we say, not what you say, and we don't care what God says. They're getting worse. They're getting worse. Jeremiah basically then repeats what he has just said, and for sake of time, we're going to just gloss over it. But I'd like to bring your attention to verse 25. He says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, Ye and your wives have both spoken with your mouths and fulfilled with your hands, saying, We will surely perform our vows that we have vowed to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings unto her. This is the vow that you have made. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Ye will surely accomplish your vows and surely perform your vows. Vows to commit and to continue in wickedness. 
Verse 26, therefore, hear ye the word of the Lord, all Judah that dwell in the land of Egypt. Behold, I have sworn by my great name, saith the Lord, that my name shall no more be named in the mouth of any man of Judah in all the land of Egypt, saying, the Lord God liveth. But I will watch over them for evil and not for good. And all the men of Judah that are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by the famine until there be an end of them. Judgment's going to come. You notice here he says what you've said, it's going to happen. But look at verse 28. There's a little bit of promise. Yet a small number that escaped the sword shall return. How small? Doesn't tell us. But there is a small number. It's interesting how even in the midst of all of this, there's a little hint of God's mercy. See, all of this chapter is so filled with judgment and true righteous judgment. And sometimes people look and say, oh, how cruel God is, and they skip verse 28. You can't skip verse 28. Because everyone who was there, both small and great, could have hearkened to verse 28. And even if not in their own life been spared, in the great picture of eternity been spared. For yet a small number that shall escape the sword shall return out of the land of Egypt into the land of Judah. And all the remnant of Judah that are gone into the land of Egypt to sojourn there shall know whose word shall stand, mine or theirs. See, here is the question of so much in life. Whose word will stand? Will God's word stand or will your word stand? Whose word will stand? That's the question. And God is going to prove to them that his word shall stand. And you know, he goes on to describe the fact that Pharaoh will be deposed. He goes on to describe the fact that Egypt will be conquered. We don't know exactly when this last sermon of Jeremiah was preached, but we know that within 10 years, exactly what had been prophesied came to pass. And those stones that were hidden in the bricks, Nebuchadnezzar set his pavilion up on top of them. Though not recorded in the scriptures, we have records from Greek historians who reveal to us that Nebuchadnezzar did indeed. It's funny because we don't have records in the Bible but prophecy, which is incredible evidence of the truth of God's word in prophecy. Here a prophecy is made, and it's the only record needed. Though Greek records affirm that Pharaoh did, that Nebuchadnezzar did come and he did set up his pavilion in that very spot, justice had been prophesied and had knocked down those walls and those temples and fulfilled everything that had been done in all of this. If you look back in verse 26, do you see the declaration that no more will my name be named? This is the last sermon of Jeremiah. We know nothing more of Jeremiah. I love as one commentator put it, he said, tradition is as vocal about the end of Jeremiah as history is silent, meaning we know nothing, but yet there are so many speculations given of what happened to Jeremiah. I'll give you one thing, though, as you might read commentators, tradition suggests, and people have taken it for fact and repeated it as fact, that at this point Jeremiah was martyred. I don't take and accept that because back in Jeremiah chapter 1, God says that they were going to fight against him and fight against him and fight against him and that he would not deliver him into their hands and that he would live. And so I conclude by that promise, even though we have no record of how Jeremiah died, that Jeremiah died a natural death and was not martyred because God promised that he would be hunted and persecuted and fought against but would not die. And so I take the prophecy as the record. And so whatever traditions may be, 
the prophecy holds true, just as this prophecy holds true regarding um, Nebuchadnezzar and the king of Egypt. But here lasts the end of Jeremiah's sermon, the end of his ministry. And it is this question that he asks, whose word will stand? It's fascinating, again, that the book's not listed chronologically, but the famous promise given to Barak about him surviving is the next thing recorded, which tends to tell me that he was one of those small number that escaped, maybe a hint that he's one of that small number who made it back to the land of Judah. And so there's a lot of lessons. Oh, we could spend and preach a lot of sermons on the history given here. But I'd like to present you with three truths to meditate upon. The first is this. What is your heart? Will you let God search it? Will you humble yourself before him and let him search and try your heart and reins to see if there be any wicked way? That he can reveal to you exactly what you need to change? Will you delight yourself in him so that your passions and that your desires are those that are pleasing to him? Oh, that is so important. The problem here with these people is that they wouldn't humble themselves to allow God to search their heart. Instead, they thought their own heart was fine and good and that they could trust and hope in themselves. And when they spoke, their word stood. And that's the second question. What authority is there in your life? Is it your opinion? Is it your way? Is it the desires of your heart? Is it the things that you believe and that you say? Or is it what God has said? You know, when God says to bless them that curse you, that doesn't make sense in my deceitful heart. But it's what God says. So will his word stand? There are so many different situations and commands that God has given. And so many times we have a choice. Will our way or God's way stand. And please don't be like the hypocrites we learned about this morning who've already made up in their minds what they want and what they desire, and they go to the men of God and even God himself and pray about it when they know it's not right, when they know it's against what God has already revealed. Will you let his word stand? His word stand. Then lastly, hope and rest in the promises of God. You see the promise here of the small number, and you see the promises here of judgment. Huh. Be warned if you are not a believer of the judgment to come. But as a believer, hope in the promises. This was a great promise for those people in that day. Do you know the promises throughout Scripture that are given to you, that you have? In just a few minutes, the choir is going to be singing to us a song of making all things new, which is a beautiful poem describing that though there is darkness, there will day come, speaking of the tears, but that one day Jesus Christ will wipe away all tears from our eyes. Sometimes we're in the midst of the battles and the struggles, you know, maybe like the children of Israel there in Jerusalem and fearful of Nebuchadnezzar and whoever our Nebuchadnezzar is in our lives, I can't say. But do we in those moments let fear drive us? Or do we look to our God and do we hope in him and do what is right, trusting and obeying, knowing that the day is coming when he will make all things new. He will make all things new. Rejoice in that promise. 
So this morning, will you, will you humble yourself to let God search your heart? Will you today let God's word stand over your word? And will you today hope in the promises of God? Lord Jesus, we praise you and thank you for your goodness. We need you. We seek you now. May we humble ourselves under your mighty hand. We pray these things in your name. Amen.